Hello, I'm Simon Rimmer and this is Grilling, the podcast in association with Weber Barbecues, in which I get to pick the brains of some of the very best chefs the world has to offer. Now, we discuss their culinary journeys in depth and find out what drove them to the remarkable heights every single one of them has achieved. We discuss outdoor cooking too, obviously. And in a shift from previous seasons, we've also invited them to prepare a dish for us on a Weber Genesis grill. Now, today's guest is a friend of mine. I've known John for over 20 years. In fact, we started out around the same time on telly doing this morning at the turn of the century. He has gone from being one of Conlon's big boys to running his own places. Of course, being well known for running MasterChef alongside Greg Wallace. Now then, Mr. John Tarode. Yes. So you, you and I have known each other since 1999. So we've known each other an awfully long time. And I think we will both probably agree that we're still getting away with it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's amazing. I mean, I think that, you know, we we probably met, I suppose, on the set of This Morning. Yeah. The famous set of Richard and Judy. And and that was a long time ago. And, and But somehow or another, it seems to continue. And it's been quite a, a fortunate life, I think. I mean, for me, definitely been a fortunate Same. life. I loved it. And. Um, but of course, I've watched you work really, really hard and be rewarded for it. And I think what you've done is amazing. So congratulations to you. Bless you. Let, let's just play backslapping for the next hour and just say how great we were. <laughs> I, I, I've got to say, it's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Because when I did first meet you, one of the things that you were, you were always championing was the whole thing about vegetables, yeah. which really in the in end of 1990s was a still a bit, oh, have you got hemp sandals and, and you know, all that sort of thing. But you really were very, very persistent. And of course, your, things have changed a bit in the way in which you do restaurants. But you have very quietly undertaken this sort of restaurant empire and TV career. And, but balancing it is, is, a, is an amazing thing. Thank you. It's not about me, John, but thank you. I like, no, I think that's lovely. Thank you. Thank I you so much. It's amazing. What, what and I nice think, don't think many people sort of recognise it, do they? That, you know, what you do is you start as a chef. And I remember being a young man in Australia. 1980s and, and saying, you know, I want to become a chef. And people saying, really? Yeah. What? what? what, what why would you? I thought you wanted to be a vet. Well, I, no, I, well, no, quite slightly different. But no, I want to be a chef. So how did that happen? Let, let, let's go back to that then. What, when was that point where you decided that chefing was for you? Uh, I'd always liked cooking as a kid. I mean, I sort of grew up cooking. And I think what happened was my, we had this sort of weird situation where through a bit of misfortune my father had a business it didn't quite work out and so he had a job during the day and then to help pay off his sort of you know his debts and stuff he had a milk run he used to deliver milk at night time so we'd go out and I used to work from a Friday night running you know with him instead of him having you know a second helper so paying as much he used to pay us a lot less and um, one of the places we used to deliver to or number of the places we used to deliver to were these restaurants and you'd walk in the, the door and, and I sort of looked at this, these places and they're amazing, the energy, all this sort of noise going on. And one was called the Lobster Cave. So you can imagine what they used to sell. And the other one was called Jean, Jean-Pierre, which yeah. was a little sort of French restaurant. In those days, a BYO, bring your own bottle of wine. After you know, a couple of weeks, I got the courage and I said to the, to the guy, look, you know, any jobs on a Saturday? Washing dishes or anything? I was 15 years old. And he said, yeah, I'll give you a job. 
And I was there for about eight or nine months and just loved it, loved what was going on. And I sort of got involved and I'd help out and I'd do things. And I'd suddenly turn up at two o'clock in the afternoon rather than being there from six o'clock in the shift. And then I started peeling yabbies and making terrines and making dressings and, you know, making garlic bread, as you did as a young man in the 1980s, putting it underneath the grill. (laughs) And just the smells and the sounds and the lifestyle and the nightlife, I loved, I loved it. It, It's funny, is it? Because... Even just talking about it, it genuinely kind of, you know, makes the hairs on the back of the neck stand up. And I think that so many people that we've had on grilling say the same thing. It's almost, aside from the food aspect of it, the theatre, the excitement, and that whole being of professional kitchens, if it's in your blood, you can't escape it. Yeah, I think also the other thing is I think for a lot of chefs, and I, well, for me, I'm not going to say for a lot of chefs, that's not fair. For me, it was a sort of a place to escape to. I was, I was an absolutely shit Aussie. I mean, a rubbish Aussie. Because I didn't really like football. I didn't play it. I wasn't very good at it. I didn't drink beer. And I really didn't like Australian music. Wow. You know, I really liked New Romance. No wonder you left. No, that's exactly. I had to run away. I really did. I had to run away. And it seemed to be all right because I loved New Romantics. Yeah. I didn't mind a bit of cricket, but I liked you know, cycling quite a lot. That was really good. And I prefer to drink wine rather than drinking beer. I just couldn't understand it. Where, you know, my brothers would be drinking, they'd bring what's called a slab. 24 cans of beer home on a Saturday afternoon and they sit in the front garden and drink all the beer while, the, you know, somebody lit the barbie. But it was, it, for me, I just, it just didn't work. So for me, the kitchen was this place I could escape to. And whilst my brothers were working during the day, they were doing this sort of morning shift. They would get up very early and go, and one was a horticulturist, one was an electrician. And your shift start in Australia about 6.30 in the morning and you finish at 3.30 in the afternoon. I would be going to work at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and I'd work through to midnight. So I had this sort of completely different world and life that they didn't know about. That's nice. And I loved it. Yeah. And I could listen to the music I wanted to. I could watch the, mu- the, 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 the midday television. Rockford Files was on always at midday. <laughs> Jump on my train on the way home. If I was hungry, you'd go and see Nicky the, at the pizza shop in Edith Vale. And he would cook me a pizza. Jono, how are you doing? Make me a double espresso at half past 12 at night. And I, I just think that sort of, that everything to do with that. Yeah. I, I found myself, and as an Aussie, I was, I was lost in a world which didn't, you know, I just, but that's what, what sort of became me. Can I go back even further, John? Because your mum died when you were really young. Your mum died when you were just four. Yeah. And so you were brought up by your grandma. And it's a question that I've heard it asked of you before, and I think it's a fairly ridiculous question, where people go, well, did it affect you? Well, of course it did, but your upbringing was your upbringing. Did you ever feel that people... <sighs> Looked at you differently because, oh, that's the kid whose mum died. I think that what probably happened is what we used to, as young boys, there was myself, my brothers, two brothers, um, Mark and Andrew. So backwards we were called Jam. And we would sort of walk down the street in, in this sort of little town called Maitland, which was middle of New South Wales. But my mother died. My dad and my mother lived in Melbourne. My dad had set up a business, an orange juice business, and was being very successful. Um, and my mother died just suddenly. And really extraordinarily, and now that I know the story, he, she died on the night of their wedding anniversary and next to my father. And do they know why? Is it, is it still a mystery as to why you're Sort of a mystery, yes, but they say there was some sort of an issue with her heart, but they don't know what it was. But in those days, of course, it was then not talked about and yeah. definitely not talked yeah. about with us, you know, as kids. Oh, no, well, that's just the way it was. And so, uh, but yeah, we, we go to Maitland. We then moved to Maitland back to, with my grandmother, who was my, my mother's mother. 
And Maitland's a small town in New South Wales. I mean, tiny, tiny town. Walk down the high street and you could sort of hear them go, oh, that's Anne's boys. Just awful. I mean, Anne, you know. But we didn't have any idea. And at the age of four, I had no idea. Yeah. I didn't know the difference, but I still don't know what it's like to grow up with a mother. Yeah. Because I don't. So for me, that's my life and that's just the way it is. But what happened as a result of that is that I did... I did stay on the apron strings of my grandmother. And I mean, in the true sense of the word, I mean, I was next to her at the stove all the time. Yeah. And loved it. Well, you, you were telling Great Shaw before we sort of came on about how your, your grandmother would basically, she is the ultimate barbecuer. Oh, she, well, a combustion stove. Yeah. So she had a combustion stove, which was literally a, a big old, like, a, like an aga, but a big old Australian version. And you had to light the stove in the morning because that's how you actually cooked. That's how the ovens worked. That's how the stovetop worked. But it was also only, the only way we got hot water. That's how old I am. Yeah. So I mean, I'm, I'm so old that we, we used to have to have hot water. And um, I remember having to run a bath and literally having three inches of water in the bottom of the bath. <laughs> and that's the, way, that's the way it was. But, but, you know, but she was an extraordinary woman who would go down the back garden and cut the, the kindling, um, or the chips, as we were called in Australia. You get the chips first and the yeah. big lunks of the wood. And every so often there'd be a rat or a snake in the woodpile and she'd get out a pitchfork and she was pretty good with a pitchfork and, and, a, and a rodent. Um, but, but she was just amazing and she could cook anything. And we had very little in our fridge as I sort of, you know, remember it now as a growing up, but everything was used. The, the bread was used for breadcrumbs. It was right in the bottom of the oven. She'd make meringues, be, you know, they were always sort of somewhere in a slow cooker. Everything was, was you know, done. We, we ate fresh food every single day the baker would turn up twice a week in a van now on our driveway and then the most fantastic and i love this story of mine it's my greatest story ever we used to have this guy who turned up in a vegetable truck so it was a truck and on the back he had like a, a sort of a market stall idea and on either side he'd have vegetables fruit and vegetables and stuff and on the back he'd always have these massive big blue pumpkins and a huge knife and I somehow sort of remember him cutting the top of his thumb off. But my brothers tell me it's all a dream. It never really <laughs> happened at all. It was just one of those great fantasies that he was there cutting the pumpkin and he cut his thumb off and there was blood everywhere. It didn't really happen, I don't think. But maybe I'll just continue to tell the story. But so for me, that sort of world of that, you know, food and everything I think about that, you know, growing up, there was always food, you know, there was a sort of, you know, my life sort of punctuated in ways by food. It's funny because, again, so many guests that we have on, it almost seems that all of us were brought up surrounded by food that almost is, is a fairly logical progression that because we're always surrounded by it, that it's almost became such an important part of our lives anyway. Do you remember the first kind of things that you, you cook with your grandma? Yeah, well, I, the first thing I ever was allowed to make was make the gravy. I could stand on the stool and make the gravy, and she had a baking tin which my auntie Mary still has. She has the baking tin still, which has been promised to me at some stage in my life. And what would happen, she'd roast the chicken and then what was left over, she'd put the baking tin on this combustion stove, which was a solid top, and then sprinkle some flour on and say, okay, John, you can do that. You have to hold onto that with a, a tea towel. And I was five years old and I'd stir the flour through until it went quite dark, then add some little bit of water and some salt and pepper and then bring it up to the boil and keep on stirring it. So you've got to keep on stirring, otherwise the lumps will stay, and you're stirring it and stirring it. So that was really the first proper thing so I cooked lovely, with that. What a lovely story. And then the other thing we were allowed to cook, because we had a toaster, which used to open the doors, the side doors of the toaster I up. I remember those, yeah. Yeah, and so my nana only liked her toast burnt on one side, not cooked on the other side, and then cold. So I was allowed to cook a toast in the morning. I used to sit up on this little stool, 
and I'd put the toaster on and cook her to, to, to start to smoke a little bit and then open it up and but the other side had to be raw and it had to be the, the burnt side had to go on the board so that the, the raw side stayed like nice like fresh bread and that was her her thing a slice of burnt toast brilliant I love that so what so so you so moving forward now so you so you get your job you you kind of work you do a little bit of kind of prep work mm. so when did it go from being a, a part-time job to saying right this is what I want to do. Well, then I I sort of talked to this guy that was at the restaurant, which is Jean Pierre, the little BYO place. We had fifty seats, and he said to me one day, he said, "Look, we we we're changing. We're actually." And at that stage, it was a thirty seat restaurant. They were knocking through a wall into another shop to make it bigger. And they said, "We need somebody else to help us out." What do you think? And in how that, old were you then? I was seventeen, sixteen, right. yeah. about to turn seventeen. Uh, and, and in Australia, you have to do an apprenticeship. So you've got to do four-year apprenticeship whereby you do four years of practical and in between that you do six weeks of college. So you have to go to college and do your... Is that still the case? Still the case. That's what a great system. And so you have a first-year apprentice, second-year apprentice, third-year apprentice, fourth-year apprentice. The government regulates your wages. Everybody's paid the same amount of money every first year, second, third, third year. So you moved around, but very rarely would you move around. So for the first two years... I was with Jean-Pierre with um, an English chef called Tim. Started off with a guy called Rufus, then a guy called Tim who was, um, how do I say, pretty hard work. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He, he taught me that I must always carry a tea towel by yeah. throwing me a very, very hot pan one day, but that was all right. Anyway, things like that, which was yeah. sort of the old school, which yeah. don't happen anymore. But yeah, then taught me like classics. So I really was French classically trained. Then my third year apprenticeship, third and fourth year, I worked in a in a, an Italian restaurant, or well, Italian-based restaurant called Sindos Bistro in, in the centre of Melbourne. And were you good? Uh, John Dench, who I still know really, really well, who was my chef for my second and third year, said I was pretty rubbish. But uh, he's quite surprised that I've actually done so well. And I don't know how much that's tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think, I don't know if I was good. I listened. Yeah. I wanted to know. Uh, I think sometimes, I think, you know, as any Aussie, you're probably a bit of a smart-ass. And you learn the lessons pretty quick. Yeah. But um, no, I don't know if I was that good. I was, I was eager. I believe that food is egalitarian. I'm not very good with a pair of tweezers. I don't understand putting things on a plate with the tweezers. I love good food that everybody loves to eat. Yeah. And I love people being around. And I suppose growing up in Australia and back gardens and, and you know, living in Maitland, we had my mother's sister, which was my Auntie Mary. My Auntie Mary was married to a guy called Alex, Alex Jashinsky. They were white Russians who came over in the 1950s, and he was amazing on a barbecue. He still is amazing on a barbecue. What he can do with some onions and a tin of pineapple, I can tell you, is quite incredible. <laughs> he is, um, but honestly, he would have, he'd go to the butchers in, you know, on the Friday, he would have all his stuff marinated, all his things sorted out, and on Saturday, there would be 40 people in the back garden. Everybody had to bring a plate. Everybody had to bring something with them, a salad of some type. Whatever they were good at, they bought with them. And everybody knew that, you know, the macaroni salad came from, you know, Auntie Jean. Everybody knew the milk pudding came from Auntie Mary. You know, it was just this thing that happened. And it was just great. It was just great. So I love that sort of family feeling. But it's funny, isn't it? Because clearly, you know, when, when you talk, the excitement in your voice and, you know, the sparkle in your eye, those things are what create the foundations for, for what we are as yeah. people. All right, so you weren't sure if you were very good, but you were successful. Well, when... I wasn't really successful. I bought my first restaurant at 20. Wow. Yeah, I bought my first restaurant at 20. Again, I thought I was pretty clever. So I bought a restaurant with somebody, went in partnership. And my 21st birthday, I walked next door to the bank because the bank had lent me the money. I gave the bank manager my keys. And I went, there you go. That's why I'm finished. 
you just send me the bill because I know I owe you money. But you're, there's you go. There's the lease. There's the keys. See you later. I'm out of here. Right. Come on. This is this is this is always the joy with with grilling. When people tell their story, there's always a bit that we they don't get in the notes or that people kind of skirt over. Right. So this is all right. Come on then. What what was the restaurant called? I, well, I want the full I want the full potted history for this it year. Called, it was called Past the Connection. Okay. Terrible, isn't it? What a terrible terrible name. Terrible yeah. name. <laughs> of course it was. It was a modern building in a suburb of Melbourne called East Bentley. Yeah. Uh, three weeks before we're about to open, we're doing the whole place. Up in those days when we're about to, to open up at uh, the age of 20, so we're talking 1985, you were allowed to take people out for lunch on business expenses. Yeah. And it was tax deductible. The Australian government brought in a rule three weeks before we're about to open up, stopping that. So business lunch disappeared completely from every suburban restaurant, changed the whole restaurant world completely. We opened up and literally it was like tumbleweeds. The only saving grace was on a Saturday and a Sunday, there was a market in the car park next to us, a massive big market. And it was rammed all the time. So we did um, a great coffee machine, had some Italian partners involved in it, did like, Italian pastries and various things. But the restaurant side just did, didn't work. It didn't work. Ever, it, 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 what, so what were you doing? What was on the menu? Oh, I can't remember, like pastas and, and stuff and some, some few desserts and nothing major. I mean, so, so, when, so when it didn't succeed and you hand the keys back, what did that do for your confidence then? You know, you're 21, you set up a business, or are you young enough then where you kind of go, ah, oh, well, what's next? You know when you're slightly arrogant and ignorant when you're young? I think I, 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 at 21 years old, I don't think anything touched me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I just think, okay, well, what's next? Yeah. And so it was really what, what's next. Then I started working various things, doing bits and pieces, and that's when I got into large-scale stuff. So I started to work for one of the biggest contract caterers in Australia, which was called Spotless at the time, and looking after uh, large environments like I looked after um, uh, BP House. Mm-hmm. So BP House in those days had 2,000 employees, had a staff canteen, it had executive dining rooms and had the boardrooms, and I was looking after the whole lot at the age of 22. And so suddenly I had this big brigade and I was sort of, you know, doing stuff. And that's when I sort of started to get involved in big numbers. So I did that. I ran away for about a year, went to Queensland, worked as a barman, came back into Sydney and then worked for, again, for this big company and started doing massive things like football stadiums, cricket grounds, uh, uh, things like um, Grand Prix. And I love that. I love the whole organising project manager, you know, doing the whole thing, bumping in. I've done tennis championships, I've done golf, I've done all sorts of other things. What kind of numbers are we talking? Five, six thousand. Wow. Yeah, massive. Yeah, massive. And everything from a, from a, you know, a party box, which is pre-packed lunch with sort of layers of things in there, everything plated up and terrines and stuff, to fine dining and dining rooms and in between carveries and all sorts of stuff. But on a good match day in Sydney, because I had two stadiums, I had the Sydney Football Stadium and Sydney Cricket Ground, I'd have 18 dining rooms running and about 165 private boxes. And it was great. Three full-time staff. Wow. The rest of it was just all bought in. I loved it. I learned to drive a forklift. You know, it was just amazing. It was great fun. <laughs> I mean, at times it felt really difficult, but it was good fun. And how long did you do that for? I did that until, until I came over here in 1990. All right. So, so, I mean, it seems almost like a rite of passage with Aussies and New Zealanders and Kiwis that they, that they want to kind of travel. Yeah. Did you almost kind of always figure that was going to be the case, that you'd, that you'd head, head north? Well, I mean, as a, as a rubbish Australian, I had to get out. 
you know, I still didn't drink, still didn't drink Forgotten beer, that. still yeah. didn't drink beer, and I didn't wear those funny shorts. Yeah, you know, and go, you know, try and catch a ball. I, I just, it wasn't me, and I still wanted to get out. I wanted to see the world. Yeah, and Australia is a mate. I, I love Australia. It's still, you know, a place that I love, and it's still my home. But, you know, you travel four hours in Australia, you're still in Australia. You travel four hours in from the UK, and you could be, you know, in you could be anywhere. You can be Eastern Europe. You could be in the bottom of France. You could be in Cyprus. You know, this almost amazing culture around the outside of you. So why would you not want to do that? So did you come over with a job, or did you come over to find a job? No, came over with a girl. Of course, of course, yeah. And um, then didn't really have a job, but sort of got a job pretty quickly again in a large environment. That didn't work. I had a I wore a suit for a while at the age of 25 and drove a Volvo and that was just didn't quite what? work for me. Doing what? Uh, there was a company called Taylor Plan, which was a huge contract caterer in the southeast. They had 50 units going through from Peterborough all the way down through into the bottom of Brighton. And I was stationed at a place called Shire Hall in Reading, which had 3,000 staff and it was the big sort of council building for, for Reading. So I used to do all that and run up and down the country and sort those things out. That's when I learned about VAT. I didn't know about VAT and you had to put that on, on your food cost. Can <laughs> yeah. you imagine the first time I did that and got that wrong? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was a big mistake. Yeah. Profit margin out the door. The thought of you, uh, Volvo fine, I kind of, you know, I'd have an XC90 any day, I think they're really nice. But back then, you in a suit and a Volvo isn't the John Road that I've known. No, and I suppose that, that, that didn't really work out. And then I did some other bits and pieces and floated around. Yeah, I mean, it sort of started. Then I went to Sydney Street where I met Greg. And sort of started doing bits and pieces and sort of, you know, really wanting to, to actually cook in the UK properly. Yeah. And so I went back to the tools, you know, I went back to the stove. I went back to the open grills and cooking in kitchens and things. And then, you know, I, I went off to La Pont de la Tour in, in Tower Bridge. And from the back of that, they sort of found out I was used to doing large scale with logistics. And that's when they grabbed me for Quaglinos. Because that's quite an interesting time, is it, for, for the UK restaurant industry, that, that whole kind of Conrad empire went to from restaurants being kind of 60, 70, 80 covers to doing huge numbers. Yeah. So 1992, 93, there was the revolution happened. Yeah. So the big revolution. And there was a couple of people that opened up. There was, a, there was the, the place on Piccadilly, which became the Criterion. And his name was Bob. I can't remember his name anymore. I'll remember it in a minute. But he sort of opened this big place up, which was 260 seater. And then Terence, we, 1993, uh, Valentine's Day. Quaglino's opened, 360 seats. And nobody had seen anything like it before in their lives. There was Langham's up the road in the corner. That was really the biggest thing in London at that stage. But because I'd done logistics and I knew about numbers, then I could, I could cope as I was number two there. Nobody could get their head around no. the staff that was required, the size of the cool rooms, the ordering systems. And so that was my job. Yeah. And I implemented all that to make sure this machine worked. And... You know, you've got to remember we had everybody from Mel Gibson to Princess Diana. We had uh, the, the private dining was the first million dollar bonus people coming from the city had their first party up there in 1994. And it was, you know, it was the place to go. Quaglianos was doing at that stage 400 for lunch and 700 for dinner every single day. And on, on a Sunday, wow. we're a bit quieter. We do about 500 for dinner. Wow. Because I, I remember, I remember when that whole revolution happened, like you say, and it was very, very much a London thing. Hmm. You know, as, a, as somebody, you know, I opened Greens in 1990, so three years in, and we're, at the time, we were a 32 covered BYO veggie restaurant. And I remember reading about it or thinking, that whole thing, I don't even know how that works. Because again, it was a whole thing of having 
prep kitchens and prep chefs, and which was unheard of in the UK. It was basically, here's your kitchen, you prep here, you cook here, that's it. And it, it was, it did bring, if you like, contract catering into the high end of dining. Well, what the, of course was the doubt that you could actually make good food in volume. Yes. And that was what we did. And yeah. this is where everybody got surprised. I mean, we were actually cooking everything to order. So, you know, if a, an order for cod with Jerusalem artichoke mash, because that was one of the dishes that was on the menu, came through, the Jerusalem artichoke mash would be warmed up in a small pan, the cod would be cooked to order, and the sauce would be finished in a pan on the way. And the line would work like that. Wow. And everything would come together. at the, I mean, And it was, it was in, everything was made to order on the spot. And it was, it was a really exciting time, huge amount of energy, really tough. But, I mean, it changed what was going on in London at that stage. And, and, it, did. Yeah. And, and it stopped people saying, no, no, if you're gonna do big stuff, it can't be very good. It can be. Yeah. And I love that. I love that you can have egalitarian, good quality food, and you can do it in volume. You've just got to understand how to make that work properly. I think it also was around the time when we started celebrating British food, British culture, and importantly, British ingredients. Whereas like almost sort of prior to that, then it would be, well, the Italians, the French, the Spanish do it far better than us. And you go, you know what, we, we have quite amazing produce. And suddenly we started being proud of it. In you guys were shit at promoting your own produce. Completely. You've got the best beef in the world. Yeah. You've got the best asparagus in the world. You've got the best raspberries come out of Scotland. You've got the, the best strawberries in the whole world. Your clotted cream is amazing. The array of cheeses in this country yeah. are absolutely extraordinary. And you're going, I've got to buy French. Was like, what are you talking about? Yeah. All these guys going to Rongis, right, and going to and buying what they call pelures. Yeah. This is the one that really got me annoyed. You get this little sort of wooden bucket of clams. And then sort of one day going, whereabouts in France are they getting clams? This doesn't make any sense. Of course they weren't. The clams were coming from the UK. They were going on a truck. They were going to France. They were being repacked in a box <laughs> yeah. and sending back from France yeah. to the UK. It's just nuts. Yeah. Longestine, again, coming to the, from the French market. It's from Scotland, you idiot. Yeah. A beautiful yeah. Longestine coming from Scotland. It was just so frustrating. And that's when I, I mean, that was when I really got my teeth stuck into it. Yeah. You know, beef especially and great veg. And with Greg, you know, who's now doing MasterChef with me, I mean, he was my veg supplier. Made him quite a bit of money, those restaurants, I've got to say. He'll never admit that. No, he will. And you also admit that he then lost it all, but that's okay. That's his, <laughs> that's, that's his story to tell, not mine. And, um, but yeah, but, you know, it was, again, the exciting time of actually going out and getting suppliers to be proud. Knocking yeah. on their door and going, we want to buy you a space. What? Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. You know, and it, it, was, it was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So how long did you stick with Conan? Because then you, you opened Smith's after how long you'd been over here? I opened Smith's in 2000. Okay, so you'd done what? Eight, eight years with Terence, okay. eight, eight and a half years with Terence, yeah. I loved, was my, one of my greatest inspirations, Terence. He was, God rest his soul, was one of the most incredible entrepreneurs and incredible talkers, and a man who really like, inspired you. And the first time I ever met him, I've got to tell you the first time I met him, because I was at Le Pont de Tour, which was a, a restaurant at Tower Bridge in, in London. It's two parts to a posh side of the restaurant, which was about 80 covers, and I had a wine cave. Then there was the sort of cafe bar area with a crustacea bar, which Terence wanted to have. So sort of very, very French in its own way, but using lots of British produce. And I'd get in really early in the morning, and I'd get there, shift started at eight, I'd be there about quarter past seven. And this guy walks in the door and he's got a blue shirt on and he's got literally got a coffee stain right down the side of his shirt. 
He's got this plastic bag in his hand. He walks in and he went, where's David? It's like David was, of course, the chef. Oh, he's not here. I'm sure he'll be here soon. Can I help you, sir? He said, yes. You tell David, these I bought from Provence. Put them on the menu with some soft cheese. They're delicious. Put the bag down, <laughs> and it was a bag of figs from his fig tree in Provence, which he brought over. And it was just the smell of these figs was like mind-blowing. I mean, it was so beautiful. Wow. And then, we, I mean, him and I got to know each other quite well. I talked to him a lot. I helped him. We did designs of Mezzo, and we did various things together. And, and I, you know, really sort of really, really liked him a lot. And then one day we were talking about something, and I, I said to him, I said to him about I wanted to build a hotel in London. And I said, but, you know, Terence, it's only a dream. He said, John, without dreams, there is no reality. And it just sits with yeah, me to go, yeah. Yeah. Because everything we dream of, yeah. it's gonna, that's gonna makes the reality. Yeah. So you think about it, you can make it. And it was, it was sort of what, such a, he was so in, in brilliant and so inspiring and so clever. And, you know, he's, he's fingers in so many pies. Not just like you, able to adapt really easily from circumstance to circumstance. You know, running restaurants, doing TV, doing interviews, doing all these things that you do, which you think, yeah, it's all right. Live, it? Few people can do it. Yeah, oh, bless you. And I know, but I mean, that's what I mean about him. Yeah, he, was he was incredible. Incredible yeah. man. And, I, and, I, and his influence is so apparent in British culture. Like, you know, we're sitting in this beautiful house now, and you almost see traits of what Conrad kind of brought to to British homes without a shadow of a doubt. And restaurants. He, yeah. There's something, yeah. Called, something called the shadow gap. So when you go into, if you ever go to a posh hotel and a restaurant, you'll see there's a door frame. And around the door frame, there's usually a gap before you hit the plaster. Yeah. It's always in very, it costs a huge amount. He did the shot. That was his thing. You know, he bought over the chicken brick, yeah. which was that pot made yeah. of clay, with, but you put a chicken in a roaster. Yeah. You know, all these weird things he did. Yeah. But as far as food was concerned, he was willing to make that gamble. He was willing to go, you know, let's open this big restaurant in, in St. James's on a side street in a basement, because yeah. that's what Quaglino's was, without a window yeah. at all. And let's put 350 seats in it and see what happens. Even that now, you and I as kind of like older gentlemen, you think that's mental, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't do that now, would you? You wouldn't take that, that chance now. No way, no way in the world, without a window. Yeah. Incredible. But do you think then, because of that influence on you, when it came to opening Smith's, because you took a gamble with Smith's, you, you, you very much changed the start of the day in the UK. Because, because you were, well, you were an all-day operation. So you opened Smith's, you opened from 7.30 in the morning until late at night, four floors, all with a different concept on. But the big one, because I remember going sort of very early, very early doors, literally and, and in theory, and having breakfast. Nobody apart from Greasy Spoons were doing breakfast back then. No, because in Australia, when I went left Australia and I was in Sydney the last couple of years, one of our great treats was going out for brunch on Sunday, Saturday or Sunday. And I wanted to be able to have that back in, I wanted that in the UK. You could go out and you could, you know, go and you have scrambled eggs and smoked salmon. You could have a cu good cup of coffee. And coffee was a really big thing for me. Yeah. You know, getting a decent cup of coffee. And still then, when I opened up Smith's, the coffee, co the corner shop coffee was called Seattle Coffee Company. I remember them. Which yeah. was bought out by Starbucks. Yeah. You know, coffee had just started happening. Yeah. And so for me, coffee was really important. Breakfast was really important. And I wanted something which was cool. But I also, again, this was this sort of, I wanted an environment where people could come in, and this sounds like a really odd thing to say. I wanted people to be able to walk in at seven o'clock in the morning and over the day stay there. 
So there were sofas in the corner, you could write a book. In fact, the curious incident about the dog in the night was written in the ground floor of Smith's. Then you go upstairs and then in that sort of middle bit, there was a cocktail bar. Then there was the dining room where you go and have lunch. Then at night time, you go upstairs and go a bit posh if you wanted to and have a fine steak and wine. And then when you finish, we went down the cocktail bar, which opened at three o'clock in the morning. So you could start at seven and stay there all day. And I would really happily take your credit card when you left. <laughs> but, but, but I think but that was the thing. Nobody was doing that. And, and I think that whole thing about the dream that we all have as restaurateurs is that you go, I want to be irresistible to a customer. So if you want to go and have breakfast, you go to Smith's. If you want to celebrate a birthday, I'll go to Smith's. If I want to have a nice lunch with my mum, I'll go to Smith's. And that, you know, we talk about dreams. That is that kind of dream that, you know, you could spend 24 hours in Smith's and, you know, yeah. need to remortgage your house. Yeah, well, you're not, well, but thankfully you didn't have to because actually we weren't yeah. that crazily expensive. Yeah. We didn't want to be. Again, this is egalitarian. Yeah. I want people to be able to walk in with, you know, in the 2000s. I, I didn't want people to have to feel like they had to dress up. If you want to come in a pair of flip-flops and shorts, you go for it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing was that that, that bar, that ground floor bar area, which had a sort of bitchman floor, and the idea was breakfast in the morning, going through to lunch, and then the sort of pies and stuff would come on. Then the afternoon would continue. Then the bar would open up and the pints would happen. Then about 7 o'clock, the DJ would start. And the next thing you know, there'd be 400 people on that ground yeah. floor at 10 o'clock at night going, woof, 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 woof. And one of the things I learned from Terence, which was really, really interesting, is that when we did Mezzo, I said to him, I said, this getting through this bar, Terence, to get downstairs is proving really difficult. He said, don't you love the chaos? Yeah. And I went, what, what do you mean? He said, well, you need people to have a bit of chaos. It makes their heart just beat that little bit faster. And it makes them just be a little bit more curious about what's down those stairs. Let them find what's down those stairs. So coming into this place, knowing there's this stuff upstairs in Smith's, but coming in this place, which was like, wow. Yeah. And we had, we had a padded lift. And in those days, there was a couple of restaurant viewers who were pretty tough. And one of them had written on, on, a, on a review, had written, the noise in the place was so much. I was coming down the lift, bashing my head against the wall. <laughs> but the food was really good. And that's just like, yeah. you know, well, yeah. I've done my job. I don't care. But, but there, there's a chance. And then you kind of, then you did more Russian. So we're going to have to jump ahead because you and I could sit and talk all day. What made you decide to step away from active involvement in the restaurant? How old were you when you thought, you know what, I need to change? You've not even talked telly yet. Uh, I was, well, it's now 10 years ago, and I was going through a big change in my life. And a big change in life because in life when you're a restaurateur, things go wrong, and things go wrong because you don't just have a life as a restaurateur, but you have a restaurant life as a family person. Yeah. And when things like that start to go wrong, then they go wrong. And you, I don't think, I couldn't do television, restaurants, and all that starting to collapse at the same time. Yeah. And something had to give. And I had to continue to earn money, but the fact is that running restaurants, you know, when I was doing that, and I had, by then I had opened the Lux and done other things, I'd, um, it was just too much pressure. Yeah. And, and something had to give. And so I stepped away and just went, that's it, done. And I'm really pleased I did it when I did it because I've still got the energy to do it again. Yeah. It, did, did you think that when you, when you stepped away that it was going to be a temporary step away? Or were you pretty certain then that, you know what, I love food, I always want to be involved in the industry, but I'm kind of done with I th that. I think the head was spinning so much I had no idea. 
You know, yeah. I think you, you just do at that stage in life, you sort of do stuff by instinct, don't you? you just go for it, yeah. and you've got to do it, and it becomes a sort of survival type thing. And I suppose, like anything you do in life, if you try and work it out and analyze it too much, it becomes, you know, you, you make yourself depressed. Yeah. So actually, it happened. Yeah, it's done. It is what it is. It's been quite fortunate. Actually, it gave me more time to work on MasterChef and, and build a career. I don't know if MasterChef would still be going. MasterChef's been going for 18 years. Wow, which is quite incredible. You know, and, and I love doing that because I've, I've sort of, I've always wanted to have young people, like we were talking about apprenticeships earlier on and how you got to do an apprenticeship in Australia and you bring up young people. Watching young people and people come through MasterChef and falling in love with food and understanding it is really my reward rather than having to do it through the kitchens and do it through restaurants. Well, let's talk MasterChef because it is it's, it's something that you've become so well known for. I mean, we've sort of said it's been going for, for 18 years. Have you seen a change in it since it started? Wow. I mean, the change in food is amazing. Yeah. And what we have in our fridge, what the ingredients we would use. I think that when we first did MasterChef, I mean, if you said to somebody, you know, a bit of chorizo, there might be, you know, out of 20 people, there might be one person who put up their hands and go, yes, I know what that is. Yeah. You know, we all, well, most of us now know what it is. I mean, you know, d yes, it's massively changed. Coriander, spicing, herbs, you know, all those things, the integration of different cultures coming through. But also what I love and what I've really loved is that the people who have, have you know, come into Britain over the years, over the last 30 or 40 years, have suddenly appeared to be really proud of their culture and the food that they've grown up in their homes and are coming on MasterChef to actually show it off. And maybe they're moving that and making that fusion or, or a little bit, but there's this incredible you know, food from, whether it be from the West Indies and you know, Jamaica, Trinidad, Tobago, whether it be from Iran and Iraq, whether it be from Greece or you know, Italy, or even you know, go down to something like Crete versus the rest of, you know, yeah. of Athens. And suddenly you sort of realize that you know, it's like anything, isn't it? That you know, food, food at the north of Italy is going to be very different from the food at the south of Italy, yeah. as the food of north of England is very, very different from the south of yeah. England. And so Indian food, well, India is a massive subcontinent. Yeah. And so, you know, go and sweet and, you know, lovely seafood and, you know, coconut and stuff. And then go right up to the top where you get to the Punjab and it's got milk in it and it's, you know, spicy and yeah. stuff. So it's, it's just this very, very different world. Have you, have you noticed the skill set improved? Because every time I, I watch MasterChef, I think from, you know, I remember, say, before your day, then you, you watch it and you go, yeah, yeah, they're competent home cooks. Now, as a professional chef, I look at some of the skill sets. In the early rounds, I go, Jesus, these guys are... I They've got better skills than I have. Well, it is about, I think it's also, I mean, one of the, the, greatest, the greatest helpers has to be the internet. Yeah. You, you want to know anything at all. And I watched this guy once, and I, I, one of the guys who were on this mass challenge in a tent, and he had to skin six sides of salmon. He pulled a glove out, grabbed the whole side of salmon, dropped it on the board, put it down, put his hand in it, and rubbed his hand straight along the salmon and yes. took the skin off. Yeah. Skinned the salmon with his hand with a glove on. Where did you find that? I watched it last night. So I had to skin a bit of salmon. He said that, that seemed to be the easiest way to do it. And just like did these six sides of salmon with his hand and the glove. It was like, because you can learn all this stuff. I mean, somebody recently who did the same thing with cleaning prawns. It was like, no, I, apparently if I, and this person I thought, there's no way in the world, it was a celebrity. No way in the world this is going to happen. Grabbed the prawn, picked it up, did blah, 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 got this thing, and then got a, a toothpick and went and pulled out the back. I went, where'd you learn that? Oh, I saw it on TikTok. 
So we're we're seeing all these skills happening, which is fantastic. Yeah, which we've been sort of trying to practice. But you know, yeah. watching some of these people with knives and stuff now, and and it's a, it's a joy. It's an absolute yeah. joy. But as you know, a restaurant environment and a professional oh, kitchen yeah, yeah, yeah. is a such a very different place. Yeah, than you know doing Master Chef where you've got to do a couple of dishes compared to doing the same dish over and over and over again and making sure it's absolutely perfect. So what's next then? You know, we're, we're, we're a similar kind of age. Do you ever see yourself stopping? You're younger than me. No, I'm not. I don't think I am. How old are you now? I'm 57 this year. No, I'm older than you. Are you? Yeah, I'm 59. You look great on that. Thanks. You look really good. <laughs> so you shouldn't have given up restaurants. It's, it's the way to go, Do John. you ever get any of those sort of weird questions from journalists and they ask you weird questions like, do you know, have you ever had any Botox or anything? No. I just, yeah, I had this, yeah, this person that says to me. Yeah. <laughs> I just you, use you, tweezers. Have you, have, you have a Botox? Like, Do you think I'd pay to look like this, really? <laughs> <laughs> really? And the other, the same, same person said to me, oh, when was the last time you smoked a, a marijuana joint? I went, what, do you think anybody would answer that question? What, what would you, why would you think it's what, it's right. ridiculous? Here's the weirdest question I've ever been asked by a journalist. So, uh, I was uh, doing some promo for one of the books and for, one of the journalists sort of said, you know, do you have any pets? I said, yeah, you know, I've got a dog, I've got a cat. I said, oh, you know, there's a, there's a magazine uh, that do celebrity pets. Would you do an interview with them? So I said, yeah, yeah, no problem at all. And this is genuinely true. So the journalist said to me, so if your dog and your cat were film stars, who would they be? <laughs> and I said, I can't, I, I've never ever considered that. And this journalist generally says to me, she goes, yo, come on, everybody thinks that about their pets. <laughs> no. Seriously. That's extraordinary. That, yeah. Oh you, have you got any pets, John? Uh, we've got a dog, yes. So if your dog <laughs> was a film star, I mean, now your head is going. Well, I think it'd be the dog. It'd be its own dog, wouldn't it? It'd be its sort of itself, wouldn't it? It was a film. In fact, that'd be quite good if it was a like Hollywood film star. I could be its chauffeur. I could sort of drive it around in the back of it, little sort of, you know, couldn't you? So, Rory, you're right out there. And it'd be great. Be brilliant. Yeah. I think she'd like a little sort of, yeah. you know, diamond the, the collar yeah. and stuff. And I, I might start including that question into every episode of Grueling. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I think it's absolutely brilliant. Your pet, what's it going to be? <laughs> so, so, so what is next? I mean, do you ever see yourself slowing down? Uh, well, I, I have slowed down. I've slowed down a lot since, I mean, I think the, the pandemic has changed a lot of us, really. Yeah. And really changed our mindsets, changed my mindset. I don't necessarily jump out of bed thinking, what am I going to do new today? Yeah. Um, I try and do a little bit more maintenance, I suppose, and look after myself a little bit. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks for that. Um, I, I think it's it's a difficult situation when you when you do MasterChef and you eat all the time yes. and you're eating every day all the time. Yeah, it's really really difficult to try and sort of keep that lifestyle and try and, and do. That. I also know that you you're a big advocate of making sure that you're eating it properly rather than having a little thought for. I know that you you're a big yeah. believer that if someone's going to cook a dish, you want to get to the point where you've had a, a decent amount. So you get the proper appreciation of it. You've got to, you know, you've got to pay them the courtesy to actually yes. eat, the, eat the dish that they're presented for you. Of course yeah. you do. Yeah, I mean, I think long... I mean, I'd like to do something, but I'd like to do something more lifestyle-based. Okay. I'd like to do something which incorporates things like, you know, uh, yoga, plants, food, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, nice. That, yeah, that would. But yeah, it's great. But yeah, yeah as, I, as Terence said, it's a dream. Now, there's one thing that we get all of our, our guests to do on grilling. So you and I, you're, you're going to take me 
anywhere in the world. We're, we're going to go for something to eat. It can be somewhere fine. It can be a little cafe bar. It can be a location. But it's somewhere that it's you and I now. We can get there however we want. You know, trains, boats, planes, private jet, whatever. Where are you going to take me? Shivers. I'd have to take you a couple of places. I don't think I'd take you one. Okay. That's fine. I, t- I, t- I take you, uh, first of all, I'll take you to a little, uh, and uh, sadly, it, the place that, that was there is now closed, but next door there's a, a sort of pop of posh, posh version. Take you to a beach in the Algarve, and there was a place on the Algarve, it was a little beach cafe, and you'd go there, and what would happen is when you sat down for lunch, a lady would come out with a bucket full of fish. Ah. And you'd, she'd say, what do you want? And you'd choose whatever you wanted. And then you'd always be served what was called African rice, which was rice, which was just mixed with some vegetables. She'd go out the back and literally split the, the, the fish in half, open it up and put it on the grill and cook it for you. Mm. You'd just have that, rosé, African rice and watch the sun. Next to that now, unfortunately it doesn't exist, there's a place called Gigi. And Gigi is not cheap. They do now take a card. They never used to use to take only cash only. So there'll be always people running up the, up the beach trying to get to a cash machine somewhere. <laughs> but amazing fresh fish cooked over flames. You go in again. You go in. You choose the piece of fish you want. You choose the vegetables you want, some salad you want. And then the vegetables they cook, which are usually potatoes and carrots, are cooked in half sea water and half normal water. They go oh, to the sea wow, and they wow. take a bucket of water from the sea. And that's what they use to cook their vegetables. So no salt. So they don't use salt in anything. That's it's brilliant. absolutely incredible. And they do clams. They just do clams in some white wine and parsley and you get bits of bread and then you have your fish and you have, you have, it's just, and you sit under these amazing orange parasols. But if I really wanted to take you somewhere and somewhere that for me has just completely changed everything for me, I would have to take you to the streets of Thailand at about 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And just to the street markets where you go and the hawkers are still there making everything from somtum, which is, you know, green papaya yeah. salad to piece of grilled fish and grilled chicken and amazing, amazing food, which is not cooked for tourists. Yeah. It's cooked for the locals. And it's yeah. where the locals go and eat their food. That's where they go and buy their food. That's how they eat. That's exactly what they do. And for me, it is amazing food it comes from markets that don't have refrigeration which means that nothing can be stored for a long period of time it means it has to come from the market it goes to the stall it's cooked that day when they run out they close the stall simple and i absolutely everything i've always sort of believed in that for me is it's egalitarian it's delicious it's accessible and you know what it's something you can just sit there and just love to eat and want more of all the time Brilliant. Love it. Love it. Now, the big change that we've done on the, this run of grilling, in the past, what we used to do, we used to do our, our barbecue challenge where I would give you ingredients in your head and you would create something oh, for I me. Oh, I like this. Can we not do that as well? No. Oh, so, oh, so, come on. So, just give me this a couple. This give year, me a couple and I'll do something really weird. Come on. This run, we're going to actually get you to barbecue. Yes. So we've got our Weber Genesis sitting outside there waiting for you. What are you going to cook for us, John? We're going to do, we're going to do whole fish. Whole fish on the barbecue with some potatoes. And I suppose it's sort of a, a barbecue version of fish and chips in its own little way. I think that people are really scared of fish. Very much, particularly on barbecue. Anywhere. Yeah. And I just want everybody, to, I want to try and demystify it. And cooking whole fish, you know, talk about Gigi's and, and places like that, is that, that I think it's, if you understand it, it's really easy. Yeah. And there's the first rule for me is very simple. And, and it was a sort of funny little rhyme I was told. Never turn the fish over or the fisherman will fall out the boat. Basically, you're in danger here. So if you try and turn a fish over while it's cooking, it's going to fall apart and go wrong. So 
that was the little sort of thing. Work it out that way. So we're going to cook the whole, we're going to do potatoes first, because this is the other thing, is potatoes take longer to cook than a piece of fish. And fish takes half as long to cook as you think it does. Yes. So if you think it's going to take 20 minutes, it's going to take 10. Yeah. And then it sits somewhere. Just cook it sympathetically. I, th I think you should write a book of affirmations. You've, you've done some great little statements through the whole of the screen that, that I'm liking a lot. Without dreams, there is no reality. If you turn the fish over, then the, the fisherman falls out of the boat. I, it's how I, I remember stuff. I, I, I love it. Well, I, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it, is that I do... I think memory is, and unless you sort of take, you take an idea and like a word, like if I say that thing about Terence, about dream reality, yeah. I can see him standing on the steps of Barton Court, where his house was, and walking around to Sean Sutcliffe, who had the wood, the wood workshop, which built the pass for Mezzo. And, you know, you just, things that, re that each little thing makes a story, doesn't it? And I think food does the same. Yes. You know, I think that that sort of food thing and you, the memories that that brings up and, you know, eating well and cooking a piece of fish and understanding it, that's you know, potatoes and fish. They're, they're all accessible. Yeah, completely. Mr. Terrell, be, be, I've just got to say a, a massive thank you. You know, we've known each other for a long time. We, we never get to spend enough time together, even though we constantly say that we should. It's lovely to sit down and kind of hear your story and also to get some great barbecue out of you. Well, thank you very much. Thank indeed. you, mate. Thank, thank you for doing grilling. What a great episode of grilling. Now, if you want to see John make his fantastic whole stuffed sea bass with potatoes, head to webber.com forward slash grilling right now, where you can also find videos of the recipes put by Yoto Matalengi and Andy Oliver, and soon to come, Marco Pierre White. The Weber website is also the place to find loads of great recipes to cater for all tastes, seasons, and abilities. Grilling is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Thanks so much for listening. See you soon.